Miranda Kelly Heller, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Your debut novel is The Paper Palace, and everyone is reading this book right now. And we are in love with this book, and we're not the only ones. So thank you for making the time. I do want to warn listeners, we are staying away from spoilers because everyone just needs to experience this book. So Miranda, would you set up The Paper Palace for listeners, please? Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. I'm thrilled to be here today. The Paper Palace is the story of a woman, Elle Bishop, told in two time frames. One is 50 years and then her life told over 24 hours, during which she has to make an incredibly impossible decision. The novel opens at 6.30 in the morning and Elle remembers the night before where she has gone outside during a dinner party and that her mother is throwing. This is in the backwoods of Cape Cod. And she has had very excellent sex with her oldest friend, Jonas, while her husband and his wife are inside at the dinner. And now she has to choose between her husband and Jonas. And Jonas is the person she's been in love with her entire life and would have married if it hadn't been something terrible that happened in their childhood. And Peter is absolutely beloved by her and equally amazing. And they have three children. And so she's faced with this terrible moment, this terrible crossroads. And the 50 years tells us why. Mm -hmm. When did you start this novel? Hmm. I started it a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I wrote the very first section probably 10 years ago even. Mm -hmm. uh, just the very first chapter. And then I took it back out of the drawer um, after all of those years. Um, probably five and a half years ago. I'm going to say I didn't work on it uh, consistently. <laughs> I worked on it when I could. So it just took a long time to come to fruition, but it, then it did. Did you start with an image or did you start with a character when you say you wrote the first section? Because it's a very intense opening. It's fantastic, but it's really intense. Thank you. I started with the first sentence, which is things come from nowhere. And then I just followed my brain or it followed me, or I don't even know what, from there, what first entered my head was a pear and then a bowl. And I truly unfolded it from that image. And I knew that I wanted to examine the life of a woman of a certain, she's in her early 50s. I wanted to examine her life from two points of view and her sort of entire life story in these two time frames. And so I knew that going in, but that's pretty much all I new. You write this opening, you put it in a drawer, you come back to it. Where do you go from there? Because you've got Elle, you've got her lovely husband, Peter, you've got this lovely guy, Jonas, you've got Elle's mother, Wallace, who is possibly one of my favorite characters in literature right now. She's a stit. I mean, she's a lunatic, but she's a lunatic in a good way. Elle was raised by wolves. She was raised by very pretty wolves, but they were wolves. Yeah. And the way the story unfolds, you've got the pressure cooker of the 24 hours and she's got to make this decision. But then you've got 50 years of some really intense moments. A lot happens in this book. Did Elle show up next? How did you sort through where you were going as the writer? Elle showed up next and Elle took a swim. During that swim, something about her coalesced for me very quickly, mm -hmm. which was that Elle is a person who wants the safety of shore where she can see the sandy bottom, but she also loves the danger and the thrill. And she is a character who herself is very divided and has 
some darkness in her and a lot of light and humor as well. And I hope the verisimilitude of what a, a woman is like and a woman who's experienced many, many things. As to taking it out of the drawer, it was interesting because the next thing I wrote before taking it out of the drawer was the baby scene. And then I sort of put them together and I then began to put it together to go back and forth and put these puzzle pieces. But I didn't, you couldn't know what they were because in life, each thing, and it's so much what the book is about, choice, and how each choice we make completely changes our direction, no matter how small or how big. And so I kind of wanted to follow the choices one to the next and the events and see how she developed as a person. So I followed her. I didn't direct her. And that was really kind of an amazing process. Elle and her mother, Wallace, and Wallace's mother, make some really big choices in this book. And for Elle's grandmother and for her mother, in a lot of cases, it is to make sure that they are financially secure and that their children are provided for. I mean, we're talking the 1920s and the 1930s and the 1950s and 60s. And really, these women are making very difficult decisions. And here's Elle in a very stable relationship with a very nice man, with kids that are they're teenagers, but they seem like good sorts. They're just teenagers. And yet here she is about to possibly blow up her life. Indeed. <laughs> in almost the exact opposite moment that her mother or her grandmother might have had. You inherit choices. And that was another thing that I really wanted to look at. And there are very strong female characters and very flawed, but each one has undergone a form of trauma. And it's so interesting that you raise the question of money. Jane Austen is a, my favorite novelist. And the pressure on the women and the fathers, actually, as mm -hmm. you see, yeah. in, say, Pride and Prejudice, or all of them, they can't survive without a man. Otherwise, they're sort of living at home and sitting in the corner. But that wasn't just true during that period of time. That continued to be true in so many ways. And certainly in, in Nanette's life, she comes from a very wealthy family that lost everything during the crash. And she's very beautiful. And she's sort of their only currency. And that in itself, I think, was traumatizing to her in so many ways, what she went through. And so when, without making spoilers, but when something is going on with Wallace, she chooses the man. She doesn't have a choice mm -hmm. from her mm -hmm. point of view over whose side to take. Wallace then becomes Wallace, mm -hmm. who is a person who is, I think, very much deeper. And one learns that sort of by the very end of the novel and the last scenes between Ellen Wallace. Wallace is very deep and strange in so many ways, but she's shielded. And it's very important to her to keep things on the surface and to behave as if nothing has any importance. And so she says, oh, divorce is good for children. Oh, don't be ridiculous, darling. What would have happened? Unhappy people are always more interesting. What, what might have happened if you hadn't had a horrible childhood? Did Wallace really want her daughter to have a horrible childhood? No, but this is sort of how Wallace deals with things. And then the questions for me come up, when Elle goes through her own trauma, would she have potentially had a different response or been able to go, go to Wallace if Wallace hadn't become the person she had become because Nanette became the person she became. So that really fascinates me. The pressure, and I would say the way that the choices and the love affairs of our parents and grandparents can change our lives. 
Elle comes from a family of divorce. She says at a certain point in my family, divorce is just a seven letter word. Like I'm bored. Mm-hmm. And I think Elle's very invested as well. And that's part of the huge difficulty. She's very invested in doing the opposite and having a stable marriage and children. And she's been married for a very long time and very happily so. And it's Nanette and her marriage to Elle's grandfather that brings them all to the paper palace. And as someone who spent a lot of time in New England, a lot of us have these stories of inherited spaces that you have to have a certain amount of love for simply because it's the inherited space. But can we talk about the Paper Palace for a second and explain the title and explain Elle's relationship to this specific play? Yeah, absolutely. So the novel is set in a very rundown camp called the Paper Palace, which is on the edge of a pond, a freshwater pond. It's a kettle pond, so it's glacial. That's very, very close as well to the ocean. And it's a very rough landscape. It's a very wild landscape, only dirt roads. And Elle grows up there every summer. And the place is sort of her touchstone. I want to examine the way that place can define us and imprint on us in various ways. I grew up spending all summer, every summer on Cape Cod, on the Outer Cape, where this is set. And for me, growing up there in the 70s, our parents had their eye off the ball completely. And so we were just this wild bunch of kids and they had no interest basically in us. They were always naked. So we didn't really care that they had no interest because it was really creepy. And this was, you know, 60s and 70s. But for me, that combination of kind of neglect And um, freedom, I think, was really important to who I became. And so with Elle and uh, her life, so much of her life takes place there, good and bad. They're sort of mirror images. And so the paper of each other, the sort of paper palace and Elle. And it's called the paper palace because her grandfather built it, little cabins to make some extra money. It's right around the sort of edge of the pond from his house. He's long gone. But he runs out of money, and so he ends up building the whole interior out of, of these little cabins out of homosa, which is kind of cardboard, pressed paper. And Elle, I think herself, in her journey to the very end of the book, the sort of realization that she is made up of these little tiny bits, too, of, of paper in a way. But just like these cabins, like the paper palace, she's strong enough to kind of withstand the hurricanes in her life and and be still standing and strong after all of the things she's gone through, the same way that these cabins are still standing. It's interesting too that Elle's dad, who we meet in and out over time, he is not particularly a stand-up guy. He is much more interested in his own personal happiness, should we say, whereas Nanette and Wallace, it may not seem like they're putting their children first, but they are in fact putting their children first. And yet here's dad swanning in with his terrible girlfriends who he seems to marry immediately. (laughs) Dad apparently seems to not be able to date. And every time we turn around, he's getting married again, which there seem to be a lot of runs of marriage. And I do think he sort of hit a number at some point where it's like, maybe you're not so good at being married. (laughs) Maybe that's... But the Absolutely. women, but the women really are sort of, in a lot of ways, forced to choose between their happiness and the happiness of others. And this is something that Elle is really wrestling with, even though 
this is set in the present day. This is as much as you love Jane Austen. This is, we are not talking about Regency England. So how does Elle get here? Why is Elle still sort of having this classic struggle? Well, I think Nanette is from a particular generation. Yeah. And I think with Elle, she has come to this crossroads honestly. Let me put it that way. She loves both men equally. They are two very different kinds of love. When I was a kid, and I've spoken about this, I was obsessed with this John Lennon quote, life is what happens when you're making other plans. And I think I've spent most of my life until actually writing the book I planned, um, <laughs> to doing a little bit of that myself. And so that was also really interesting to me in Elle is in her mind, she always has been in love in her mind in some way with Jonah. Now, she has to choose between these two men. Neither is a bad choice, which means neither is a good choice. And so what do you do? And to that sort of question, her life depends on the answer. Her future depends on the answer. And what that for me was really important about is it's raising questions. It's not answering them, but it's raising questions, right? It's saying, who do I want to be in the end? What parts of myself do I want to be true to? Can I live with regret? Can you ever untether yourself from sort of the moral codes around you fully? This is your one life. You are, you know, early 50s. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to, as you pointed out, follow your own heart? And so if you could untether yourself from that moral world, what would you do? And to me, that's what's interesting. And I think very relatable because we wonder, whatever happens, we always wonder about the roads not taken, I think. And we all live with regrets. <laughs> and, and I think this is, has been such a difficult time for all of us going through COVID across the world, dealing with something so extraordinary, the game changer all of our expectations that tomorrow is going to be like X or Y gone and an enormous amount of trauma, obviously, but it does force you to face yourself in the mirror and face mortality in a particular way. And, and that's what Elle is doing. It seems incredibly appropriate too, just for the moment that we are all emerging or still in, in some cases, this giant reflective time. And you did a guest post for us on the Barnes & Noble Reads blog. And the question you were asking, and I'd like to just bring it in here because I think it's a great question. Here we are as a culture and a community coming out of this very difficult moment. And what is it about these stories, about these big challenges and these big questions that we have? Why are we constantly attracted to the tough stuff when we're living in what is essentially a very tough moment for all of us? Yeah, that's a very good question. <laughs> I think for me, I think the mirror, the relatability of something is very important. And so, okay, we want comfort food, but also we want to understand and we want to challenge ourselves and we want to, it's been in so many ways, a lonely and, and quiet moment. And I think so many people, even if you were quarantined with your family or children or whatever that might have been, it's still been a quiet time in so many ways, strange time. And I believe that people are really drawn to not to understanding the possibilities and to the questions, right? To asking the questions. And it's been so, I mean, I don't know how it's been for you, but it's been so dramatic. And 
dramatic, but in this sort of silenced, suddenly silent way. And so I think that's really, that Elle's dilemma is very relatable. It's very universal. And we've all, I think, had these moments where we come to the crossroads. Can we talk about the the story structure for a second? Because I love the pressure cooker of the 24 hours, but I also feel like I'm being led through the flashbacks in sort of a very languid but smart way. It's like, oh, I'm being shown what I need to know. And every single flashback is revelatory, which is really hard to do. So can we talk about why you decided to structure things the way you did? First of all, I should say they aren't meant as flashbacks, which is why it's in, told in the first person and present. So, okay. even in, when she, so, so it's its own story. The stories of the reasons is the way I think about it. And to me, everybody has certain very specific memories that they bring up again and again with their friends when they're yelling at their mother, this is why I'm this way. You know, when I was in the zoo with my father and I was little, I took his hand and when I looked up, I realized it wasn't my father. It was a man in a fedora. And ever since then, I can't stand men in hats. So these little stories, I think of them as an old-fashioned slide carousel that each of us has one, basically. And we're constantly adding these slides. And it doesn't matter whether or not they're true. They still are our weird, specific memories. Why do you remember one thing that happened. I mean, and I don't mean like your wedding, but I mean, and that could be it too, obviously. But why is it that we only remember one horrible thing or five or something that our mother or sister said? Why do we repeat those stories? They imprint for whatever random reason. And so that coalesced in my head because of a conversation I had with my son, in fact, where he was in his teens and he was facing a huge math exam and he started to have an absolute fit and say, this is all your fault. The reason I'm bad at math is because when I was in kindergarten, don't you remember? And you told me I was always going to be bad at math and don't even bother. And I looked at him as if he was absolutely crazy. First of all, I don't give a toss about math. Second of all, but more importantly, like that's your traumatic memory of all of the horrible things I am sure I said to you, right? As we do with our children, you know, even if we don't mean to, that was the one you remember that traumatized you, supposedly that I said something when you were five years old about math. Now, I'm pretty positive I did not say that to my five-year-old child. I might've said math isn't that important, don't worry about it, or you know, these days you've got your phone or whatever, not a five-year-old. I don't know what I said, but that's what he remembers. That's one of his stories of the reasons in his life, the reason he is this way. And so this is Elle's slideshow. That's a really great phrase, Elle's slideshow. So each of these memories just has a slot and she plays them as she needs to, or it's subconscious? I think it's subconscious, I think. But at the same time, when I was going through the editing process, there were certain of the scenes, oh, do you really need this? Why is that there? Mm -hmm. And when I was writing them, I wasn't thinking why is that here? When I went back, I always understood why it was there for her. So I think in terms of the unconscious process, Mm -hmm. that was really interesting. But for instance, in the scene when she's 11 years old, the snow day, Mm -hmm. that's one of the scenes that various people said, oh, do you need it? And to me, to the point I was saying about growing up with our parents in the 60s and 70s and the way they were acting like children to a certain Mm -hmm. extent, it was a bit dark. 
and a huge pressure on the small kids. And so you see this little moment where, well, a big moment with these two parents coming out naked, whatever, and talking about sex. But this little moment where Elle's friend sort of shoves her and says, are you going to take your turn or not? When Elle is just gaping at her naked parents. And, I, and that sense of sex having a dark side to it, Elle's sort of fascination, but horror, her friend's embarrassment. I, to me, that told the story of a decade. So as you were going through, are you writing as we experienced the book or are you writing in chunks and, and putting it together and then coming back and moving pieces or you just basically walked through what we see now? Yeah, that's how I did it. I didn't have an outline. I didn't know what the book was going to be at all. I didn't know what was going to happen. I'm not going to make spoilers, but all of the things that happened to Elle, I had no preconception that they were mm-hmm. going to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen to any of them. It was a, a very strange process because I did not direct it. Mm-hmm. I followed. And that was, I would just sort of let go. And I, you know, I'm in my 50s. Uh, it took me a very long time to, to get to this book. But it was in my head for a long time. And I know I couldn't have written it unless I had experienced my own slideshow, unless I had gotten from zero to 50. That's where she came from. She's not me. I'm a lot more like Anna and a lot more sort of full frontal, I suppose. But she came from a person who has lived a life and made choices, good and bad. And so I didn't. I just sort of followed it and I went back and forth and I followed the rhythm of it. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that is very important to my writing is that I come from a family of artists and writers, but also of musicians. And I myself was a musician growing up. And I hear things as almost movements musically. So I'll find a stopping point and then I pick it up and it's a different movement of that sonata. And it's, but it's a completely different color, but it's the same story in a way. And I hear, so I hear words very, very much like music. That makes so much sense. Having read the book, I can actually see exactly where the breaks are. And wow. You also did work in television development. And so you spent a lot of time with teleplays, screenplays, dialogue. Your dialogue is fantastic. And these characters, I mean, Wallace is the standout, but Elle, Jonas, Peter, they all have terrific dialogue. Can we talk about the impact that working in another creative medium had? I mean, music obviously has influenced your writing, but... So I started out actually in the book world. I was editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine. I was a book doctor. I did some ghostwriting. And I'd always had the intention of writing and writing a novel. But then I got into television and moved from New York to Los Angeles. And my husband's a screenwriter and television writer. And so we kind of needed to make that shift. I think at first, my life in literature influenced the TV development. And by the way, this is a long time ago. I mean, that chapter, the HBO chapter of my life was a long time ago in the rearview mirror. But that having been said, what I looked for were sort of novelistic television shows, right? Like The Sopranos or Deadwood and The Wire, you know, that, that, that had almost, yeah, a very large approach and a big idea at the center, but then real specificity wrapped around that 
center. And then thousands of scripts later, I think that of course began to infiltrate my brain in terms of dialogue. So then coming out of that world, a couple of things. One, I always, when I went to write this novel, my big fear was dialogue because I'd never been able to write dialogue. I thought, oh gosh, I'm going to be able to do these descriptions and I'm going to be able to do this, but the dialogue's going to be terrible, right? What interested me in this process was I felt like that ended up being most natural and I hadn't realized how much I'd learned. I mean, in other words, when I st- when I tried to write the great American novel, Ha Ha, when I was in my 20s and failed miserably, I didn't know. So actually what you're pointing out is absolutely correct, that working in that medium and, and critiquing that medium from a sort of editorial point of view, it just, by osmosis, you understand that mm-hmm. people do not talk the way you think that they do. They talk over each other. They talk randomly. They'll repeat the word that somebody said a little while ago. And also because of screenplays where there's so much that's not said and has to be put on its feet visually, I think in the best, in the best scripts anyway, what's not said is equally important. So there's a sort of bar relief in dialogue, if you like, where that you're hearing it, but to me, it's what Wallace doesn't say as well as what she says, all of the characters. And those spaces in between really are important to something feeling real, I think. You also have read and written a lot of poetry, and I think that shows as well in the prose. Can we talk about who some of your influences are? From novels, I would say James Salter reading Light Years was a kind of revelation to me. You know, there's so many novels, but reading this book in which one sentence tells you, oh, she hates her, but she doesn't say she hates her. She says she doesn't like the way, or she just judges the way she bites an apple, so to speak. The rooms themselves, the landscapes are characters. And in his books, and Paper Palace for me, the landscape, which was so important to me and to Elle, is one of the central characters in the novel. As far as poetry, and also Joy Williams, um, I, I love, it's not flash fiction, I mean, obviously novels, but she wrote this book called 99 Stories of God. I don't know if you've ever read it. That was really weirdly seminal for me because the stories are brilliant and little flashes like the slides, mm-hmm. and the title doesn't come till the end. And it's like uh, you get to the end and it's almost like a little punch in your face each time you go, oh, that's what it is. And so that really was very interesting to me too. Poetry, absolutely, I'm a Walt Whitman obsessed person, so there's that. And obviously Shelley. But in terms of more modern poets, um, Dorian, L- I can never pronounce her name, Lux, L-A-U-X, uh, who, who I think is such a brilliant poet. Sharon Olds, but also James Wright, who I think is such a beautiful, again, a small poem that has all of humanity in it for me. So I think there are a lot of, there are a lot of influences. The other thing I would say is as a child, I was really obsessed with fairy tales. There were all these things called the, the blue fairy book, the brown fairy book, the green, and they were quite dark. And the ancient fairy tales, there's probably 18 of them or something. And they're the very, very, I think they're illustrated by Rackham or somebody like that. You know, they're really the old Norse tales and so on. And the, that darkness in them was so fascinating. And to me, when to speaking to Elle's father and the marriages and the way that it sort of 
of my version of a Grimm's fairy tale that, that Elle and Anna go through with him, right? In, in, you know, I feel like he's the father in Hansel and Gretel a little bit, right? who just blindly follows the new wife and makes that choice every time. Speaking of choices, I think that's a huge piece of Elle and Anna, who they are, from divorce. That was another thing that it was really important to me to examine. One of the things that shapes Elle, and I'm now going back to one of your much earlier questions, mm-hmm. is that... I mean, yes, her mother puts them first in a certain way, but her father particularly, he never chooses them. He always chooses to take the other side. And Wallace in her way, definitely too, right? And I think what Elle then is looking for is unconditional love. And that is what Jonas offers, except he does, right? So, and Peter does, but there's this lie in between them, in between Elle and Peter, But the same lie, the content of that lie is in between her and Jonas. And so finding hope and sort of, it sounds so corny, but sort of unconditional love for herself by the end of the novel, you know, that kind of journey to her strength. Yes, it's about a choice between two men, but really it's about Elle. Question for you, though. You are publishing your first novel in your 50s. What kind of advice would you give for someone who's in a similar boat? Pardon the pun. Uh, well, <laughs> I think my particular journey was one that was fraught with criticism and self-criticism because I come from a family of editors and writers <laughs> and critics, and I was very self-critical and a perfectionist. Well, not really. I'm very sloppy, but in, in terms of I didn't want to put myself out there unless I felt that I would be able to stand up in that sort of community of writers. So I really got in my own way. I sort of was trying to, I was constantly editing as I went. When I wrote The Paper Palace, I didn't go backwards. I mean, I would when I was then presenting a chapter, let's say in a writing room. I'd then go back before I presented pages. But when I was writing it, I went forward. And I made myself go forward because I knew who I had been as a writer, which was somebody who was just trying to make it perfect. And what I learned from writing poetry is that imperfection is much more interesting and leads you into much more interesting places. So I think, I don't know, that's sort of sort of my, what my experience was. I also had the experience that I really wanted to get it published before I was 60. <laughs> and, and I just managed to look sort of slip in under, under the wire, so to speak. Um, and that was uh, definitely propelled me <laughs> to, to finish it. And I also didn't want to be one of those people who, because I felt like this for so long. Oh, you're writing a novel. Ah, you know, sure you are. It can get in your way. Other people's voices can get in your way. And that would be the sort of final thing I'd say. There's, I kept thinking I'm not a, a real writer because real writers put their ass in the chair and they, you know, write every day from nine to one and then they, whatever. Real writers have an outline. Real writers do. And it wasn't until I heard this Yale doctor quote about for him that writing, he was writing into the dark, that that writing for him was like driving in the fog at night. You only need to see as far as your headlights can show you, but you can make the entire journey that way. That's how I made the journey, but it doesn't matter. However you make the journey is fine, but you have to make it. You have to get to your destination and, and that's it really. What do you want readers to know about the Paper Palace? That it's hopeful, that it has a lot of darkness, And I think so many of us 
go through trauma, whatever type of trauma that is, probably all of us in some way. And the way that Elle finds her way out of trauma, out of carrying the lies that she's had to carry her entire life, what redeems her to herself in the end, there's an emotional mystery that runs through and sort of propels Elle's story, which is why did she do this last night? They never went there before in over 30 years of friendship. Why last night? And so in that sense, it's sort of a why done it, not a who done it. And what we understand, what I hope people will experience is living a life with somebody. And so therefore understanding the moral gray areas that we all live to a certain extent, how no matter how perfect we want our lives to be in our head, we live in a, often in a gray area. There's a quote, which I'm sure I will get wrong from a poem that I should get it right since it's been on my wall, you know, above my desk. It's a Rumi quote and from a poem. And try to get this right. Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. That's excellent. So I think that's what I hope people know about it is that it is about strength and hope and a woman who finds forgiveness for herself. And that gives her strength. If you had a chance at a do-over, would you take it? Uh, <clears throat> well, yeah, probably. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I've had a lot of lives, even, you know, mm-hmm. not just that I've, like Elle in the novel, or like as the novel sort of wrote itself, I always sort of have been a bit of a rolling stone. I move around a lot. I travel a lot. I've had wildly different careers. And that for me is what makes life really interesting and feels like it prolongs it a bit, speaking of, you know, sort of the difficult passages. So I suppose I might. I mean, and of course, if it were Jonas, you know. (laughs) But yeah, I think I would. I might. Fair enough. Are you working on the next book? What are you working on now? Actually, HBO bought the rights to the book. To, and I'm writing a miniseries and editing the first episode and have mapped out all of it. And that's been a really interesting process to be on the other side of that. I'd never written a screenplay before. And it's the sort of translation of things into completely other types of scenes because you have to put things up on their feet differently right. and add in different kinds of pressures because the novel is so specific in its puzzle-like construction and you can't actually get momentum well, at least at the beginning so it's been really really um uh, interesting but also that's fun because i get to write all new dialogue i mean some of the dialogue obviously is still there but i get to write so many i've had so much fun writing new 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 material for wallace <laughs> <laughs> there's gonna there are some very funny scenes for wallace and for peter so i think a lot of actors are going to have a very very good time <laughs> with that script well, yeah, I hope so. That's, you know, you never know with TV. It's such a different, um, it's a different medium. And um, you have much less control as the writer because you can always be replaced. So you have to be good. You have to follow orders to a certain extent. <laughs> Whereas writing a novel, it's your voice in the end. You know, I have amazing editor, Sarah McGrath at Riverhead, and we worked together so well. But she said, at the end of the day, it's your name on the spine. Mm-hmm. 
that well, we can argue, we can fight, but at the end of the day, and I would always try to find, if I didn't agree with it, the note behind the net. And I think that sort of translation, what is she looking for? What's missing? That's really fun too, that kind of, in the writing process, the sort of digging for understanding. And, oh yeah, I see. I can expand that. Do you feel like you're leaving your characters behind? Well, not at the moment because, I, because I'm completely ensconced in them because of the miniseries right. stuff. But I am I'm anxious to start a new book. And so I don't know what that'll be. I will go back to writing poetry before then. I know that for me, that's what opens up all the channels, just sort of the blank page for me. And I... I'm an old-fashioned editor. I always print out everything. I can't see it on a computer. If I'm doing any editing, I'm doing it by hand. Poetry taught me to write from a, a dreamier place and not to go digging for something, but to unearth something surprising. So that's where I start again, I think. That sounds terrific. Miranda Callie Heller, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. It has been a real treat to talk to you today. And for me, really lovely. Thank you. And thank you for having me. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.